Welcome to the A to Z of David Bowie. I'm Mark Riley, and that colourful character is Rob Hughes. As you'll be aware, the A to Z of David Bowie is free to download. <laughs> Lunacy. But if you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, you can. And here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie members club called Cheap Things, and for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Why, so now you're thinking $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive materials delivered to your door. Well, computer actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right, Mark. Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Materials such as interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends, there'll be regular film Bowie quizzes, Bowie guitar tutorials, unreleased archive written material, competitions, and perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark, Howard Nock, and Jason Reed. Visiting in various Bowie places of interest. And much more besides. All this for just $5 a month. So if you can't resist, simply go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash cheap things, or one word, and join up. There's also a website. Bowie at cheapthings.com. Book early. T is for Tin Machine. Okay, so we're going to look at the personnel first, aren't we, Bobbert? So, uh, naturally, we know David Bowie, lead vocals, electric and acoustic guitar, saxophone. Reeves Gabrell's electric and acoustic guitars, backing vocals. Tony Sales, bass guitar, backing vocals. And Hunt Sales, drums, percussion and backing vocals. So, we have already uh, looked at the career of uh, Reeves Gabrell's, obviously, and it was uh, further uh, involved in David Bowie, but we're going to be looking a little bit later on at Tony and Hunt Sales as well, aren't we? Yes, we are, yes. Individually. Okay, mm-hmm. so Tin Machine were a rock group formed in 1988, notable for being fronted by David Bowie. Now, that it, fell, it falls at the first hurdle there, doesn't it? <laughs> because the whole point of it was in not being notable for the being fronted by David Bowie. That was the whole idea, wasn't it? Because he hadn't been in a band, really. He couldn't really say he'd been a member of a band since perhaps the lower third. I know. And the other thing is also, the strange thing is that when you we would see interviews uh, with <laughs> David Bowie and Tim Machine, sorry, Tim Machine, <laughs> then uh, then th- quite often the other guys in, in the band wouldn't really be saying very much. So you'd have all four of them sat in a group, obviously on the insistence of Bowie. Obviously, most people, everyone, yes. wanted to speak to Bowie, really. Yes. But he did, as we know, he, he's hell-bent on this being a band. Yeah. And let's face it, it was, but it was hard for people to accept. And of course, if you walk, if David Bowie and these three guys walk into a room, people won't go, my God, there's Tim Machine. They go, my God, there's David Bowie. <laughs> three other blokes, and three I know. Other blokes. I mean, you know, and those three other blokes, just fantastically talented musicians, and obviously have got a great history behind them and ahead of them after this. But there is no doubting. And I know somebody who um, who went to interview uh, Tin Machine. Yes. And naturally, he just came out with an interview with David Bowie. Well, of course, that was always how it was going to be wasn't it so try as you might there's no skirting around the fact that tin machine was a band at their own kind of uh behest but at the same time everybody was just interested in one of the greatest and biggest rock and roll stars in the world ever yeah David bowie especially after coming after that whole mainstream success as well with glass spider and let's dance and everything you know it was the 80s let, let us not forget as we'll find out throughout uh, this uh, actual uh, section of the podcast and it, it did work for bowie so that mm, that was yeah. the important thing as well and, and, and it probably worked to an extent to the other guys as well. Uh, so the band consisted of Bowie on lead vocals, Saxon guitar, Reed Cabrels, Tony Fox Sales and Hunt Sales. Yeah, so Tony and Hunt are the sons of American comedian Soupy Sales. Additional musicians who weren't officially band members included the guitarist Kevin Armstrong, who played on the band's first studio album and the first tour, and the American guitarist 
Eric Shermerhorn, who played on the second tour and the live album. You um, spoke recently to Kevin Armstrong, didn't you? Yeah, it was uh, last summer, yeah, talking about the Loving the Alien box set. And we were talking about, because the relationship with Armstrong went back to Live Aid, because obviously he didn't have, only had about, uh, was it two days, I think, to rehearse, Bowie to rehearse a band for Live Aid. Right. Kevin Armstrong was his musical director and guitarist, and also uh, he's on Absolute Beginners, and he was there for the Dancing in the Street video as well. And he was also on Blah Blah Blah, yeah. which of course Bowie produced for Iggy. Yeah, and he still uh, he still tours with Iggy, so he's still Iggy's musical director, isn't he? Is Kevin? he really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. Right, okay, great stuff. Um, so did he mention anything about Tim Machine at all? We didn't get onto that. We were right. just trying to. I was just trying to concentrate on the uh, pre Tim Machine years. <laughs> right, okie doke. That's another phone call, then. Eh? <laughs> uh, Hunt Sale said that the band's name reflects the sound of the band, and Bowie stated that he and his band members joined up to make the kind of music that we enjoyed listening to and to rejuvenate himself artistically. Mm, the band recorded two studio albums and one live album before breaking up in 1992, and Bowie returned to his solo career. He'd later credit his time with Tin Machine as instrumental in revitalising his career during the 90s. And it needed it. It did need it, no doubt about that. It needed a shot in the arm, didn't it? The album Never Let Me Down and subsequent Glass Spider tour had left critics unimpressed, for the most part. And there was a general feeling amongst fans that Bowie was a spent force. Years later, looking back on his mainstream 80s period, he admitted... More than anything else, I thought I should make as much money as I could, then quit. I didn't think there was any alternative. I thought I was obviously just an empty vessel and would end up like everyone else, doing these stupid f***ing shows, singing Rebel Rebel, until I fall over and bleed. <laughs> <laughs> I love that quote. It's a brilliant quote, but the thing is that, of course, he made his bed and he had to lie in it mm. or get out of it. And so that was the thing, wasn't it? So, And we've covered it in those different yeah, albums. Yeah. But the bottom line is that he wanted to mainstream success. He got it with Let's Dance. He continued it with Never Let Me Down and Tonight, mm, yeah. but to much uh, lesser effect. And they found himself just being kind of like, oh, you know, almost a lot of people who will have known Bowie will not have known his previous material, mm. will have thought of him, oh, is that bloke who does Let's Dance? Oh, is that bloke who's walking down the steps with Tina Turner? Yeah, that's the thing. Well, do you know what? One of those people, I have to admit it, was my missus. Because uh, she was never really into, uh, I mean, she in the 80s, she was into Orange Juice and Smiths and the rest of it. She's never really into Bowie because said when she really came of age and started really getting into music, the Bowie of the 80s wasn't something you would particularly, you know, aspire to. So I've, obviously I've, I've educated her since, Mark. You know, going back to the 70s stuff, you couldn't really equate that person with the big mainstream sensation of Let's Dance and Tonight. And not only this, we've both admitted the fact that we fell by the wayside for Never Let Me Down and Glass Spider, oh, yeah. which I went to and didn't like at all, and Tonight. And so, I mean, we're hardly going to be dragging other people at this point in time. You would go, you would say, look, all right, you can, you can forget this and go and listen to Ziggy and Hunky Dory mm. and Man Who Sold mm. the World or whatever. But it would be quite hard to turn people's heads at this point in Bowie's career. So he definitely needed to do something, and Tim Machine was it. So eager to return to making music for himself rather than the mainstream audience, that he'd acquired since Let's Dance, Bowie began collaborating with Reed Gabrels, who pushed the singer to rediscover his experimental side. Bowie and Gabrels had initially met through Gabrels' then-wife, Sarah Terry, who was part of the press staff for the North American leg of Bowie's Glass Spider tour in 87. The two men had struck up a friendship when Gabrels called in at several tour venues. Now, this is crucial. Their relationship began as a social one, as Gabrels didn't mention in the beginning that he himself was also a musician. Common interest in popular culture and the visual arts provided more than enough to talk about, Gabrels explained later in interviews. And also because he was in his wife's workplace, he felt it wasn't appropriate to bring up his own music. And lest we forget, I mean, he's a virtuoso. It's not like he could play a bit. 
He's, oh, a, he's an amazing guitarist, he is. isn't he? Yeah. I mean, very, very flamboyant and out there. You know. I mean, he wouldn't he wouldn't fit in comfortably in status quo. I don't think so. No. Which is you know yeah, it, but, each of their own and all indeed. that. But anyway, at the tour's end, Bowie asked Terry if he could do anything for her. In response, Terry gave Bowie a tape of Gabrell's guitar playing. Some months later, after listening to the tape, Bowie phoned Gabrell's to invite him to get together to play and write. Uh, Bowie what t- a phone call. Oh, I know. And I think they hung out together. For, I was talking to Gabrell's um, about well again about the pre-Tim Machine period this time, uh, you know, last summer. He was saying that when he first met Bowie, they just used to hang out. Yeah, they'd play a bit of music, but they'd talk about the kind of music they really loved. And then they'd watch stuff like Faulty Towers and, and just discovered they loved the same kind of things, not just musically, but culturally. So, I mean, we know that Bowie was kind of, he was big on the Pixies, wasn't he? I think yeah, the Pixies yeah. Were, was that the kind of music that Reeves Gabrels were talking about? No, he was talking about, um, you know, kind of left-field jazz, talking about Ornette Coleman, right. Miles Davis as well, and then stuff like Cream and Jimi Hendrix. Stuff that, you know, guitar playing-wise, you know, was off the wall a little bit, you know, was out there, avant-garde, which is Gabrels' style, of course. I think he was so sick of the mainstream that he wanted wanted to get back into his, uh, I suppose, artistic leanings. You know, he'd done in the late 70s with Eno and the rest of it. So Gabrell seemed to be the perfect foil for him. Well, completely. I mean, obviously, we know that there would be an influence or seeming influence from Robert Fripp. So, mm. and, and, and Bowie would have known that, obviously, on yeah. first listen. But also, it is quite strange that they sit there discussing, you know, Charlie Mingus or Miles Davis yeah, or yeah. whoever, and then go off and form a band that is something like the Pixies. Well, yes. I mean, they didn't form a free-form <laughs> jazz band, did they? They didn't. Interestingly. Yes. Bowie told him that he felt he'd lost his... His vision and was looking for ways to get it back. After a month working together, Gabrels asked Bowie what he wanted of him, and according to Gabrels, Bowie said, Basically, I need somebody that can do a combination of Beck, Hendrix, Baloo, and Fripp with a little Stevie Ray Vaughan and Albert King thrown in. Then, when I'm not singing, you take the ball and do something with it. And when you hand the ball back to me, it might not even be the same ball. <laughs> no pressure at all, then, Absolutely eh? brilliant. Uh, Gabrell's explained to biographer David Buckley, Bowie was at a crossroads. Either he became Rod Stewart and played Las Vegas, or he followed his heart. <laughs> Another good quote. Yeah, brilliant. The first public fruits of Bowie and Gabrell's working together came with a new arrangement of the song Look Back in Anger which of course came from uh, Lodger initially the occasion was a benefit show at the ICA in London in July 1988 at which Bowie had been invited to perform with the avant-garde dance troupe La 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 Human Steps so Bowie sang played and danced with the troupe members while in lighted grottos upstage three musicians Gabriel's on guitar Kevin Armstrong on guitar and Erdal Kilzaki is that how we pronounce it? Uh, okay mm, okay you know. No, fine. Um, on bass, um, played the new seven-and-a-half-minute score that Gabrell's created from the song. We went to the studio to rearrange it, said Bowie in a filmed interview. I like the hard-edged wall of guitar sound that we put into it. Gabrell's recalled that early on they weren't sure who they were going to work with. They discussed working with Terry Bozio on drums and Percy Jones on bass. But Bowie, had run into Tony Sales in L.A. at a rap party during the Glass Spider tour, convinced Tony to call his brother Hunt so they could work together again. Of course, you know, Tony and Hunt had performed with Bowie in support of uh, Iggy haven't they, in the 70s? Well, that's right, and an amazing band. I mean, still to this day, one of the best bands I've ever seen, you know. And of course, if you've got Davy Bowie playing keyboards, it's mm-hmm. an added frisson to it. Uh, but that rhythm section, and that rhythm section, everybody will know, or nearly everybody, mm-hmm. but it obviously is the rhythm section you hear on Lust for Life. I mean, yeah. all of the other stuff around that period yeah. as well, but the swinging drums and that bass on Lust for Life, they drive yeah. it, don't they? And they're that- incredible, and we'll, we'll have a look at their uh, careers and who else he played with a little later on. Yeah. Yeah. Tony recalled that Bowie was thinking about getting a band together. He didn't know exactly what he wanted to do, but he wanted Hunt and I to meet Reeves and maybe we could all write together, come up with something. Gabrell's remembered of Tony and Hunt sales later. Their attitude was kind of, he's Davy Bowie, we're the sales brothers, 
Who the fuck are you? <laughs> this is nice. so great. Uh, Bowie himself was surprised with how things came together with the band, saying, I'd never wanted to be in a band until we got together. And as we were getting together, it wasn't really occurring to me that this is what I wanted to do. And he went on, he said, it took a week or so of actually being in the studio and working. And then I think we fully realised the potential musically uh, for what we were doing and wanted to stick with it. I was quite happy to go off and make a solo album. I was quite excited about a couple of things I was doing, which I brought into the band and which were irrevocably changed. But that's the nature of the band. Bowie was pleased that the band members clicked, calling the ease at which the personalities came together inspired guesswork. Hunt and Tony Sales kept the mood jovial during recording sessions and interviews. We've done something recently about um, about Richie Blackmore for the A to Z oh, of yes, rock, yes. and it turns out that, oh, my aching sides, he was a merry prankster, Well, who would believe it, hey? But I know, it, I mean, mm. but you could believe it at the uh, Sales Brothers. Let's yeah. forget, I mean, again, we'll look at it later, but their dad was a comedian, so yes. they, they grew up in a comedic household. Also, with all the ribbing there was a little bit of uh, hazing as well wasn't there i think with with gabrell's yeah i think there's some of that which is good natured you know it wasn't like malicious or anything but oh yeah sure certainly it was all going on but we later rejected the idea that reeves hunt and tony were backing members of his band he said the sales brothers would never accept having another boss Uh, they're far too stubborn and aware of their own needs they're not in the market to be anybody's backing band either of them you do not with the sales brothers or reeves gabrell's Gabriel said that Bowie came in one day while the group was first forming and said, I think this has got to be a band. Everybody's got input. Everybody's writing. You guys don't listen to me anyway. (laughs) The band split profits four ways. Nobody was on a salary and each member paid for his own expenses. Bowie also clarified that the band will cease to exist the moment it ceases to be a musical experience for any of us. None of us wanted to get into the kind of situation where you find yourself making albums just because you're contracted to. Now, there's a strange thing. So if you look, so like no one was on a salary and yeah. each member paid their own expenses. So that is strange, isn't it? Because I, I don't know how much money they earn. It probably did all right with Bowie's name on it. And, you know, people were waiting for something new and hard-edged from Bowie. Yeah, sales were good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, at the same time, David Bowie, even when he had no money in 1972 and 1973, mm. was living the high life in mm. all the best hotels in the world. And he yeah. must have become uh, accustomed to that again, having come off the back of Let's yeah. Dance and the Serious Moonlight Tour. So their, their pockets were not as deep as David Bowie's. And so I wonder if Bowie kind of dropped down to their level and would go to do, do an Airbnb or whether they all stayed, you know, at the uh, Hollywood Hobnob. Right, yes. <laughs> which, is, which is now a biscuit factory. Go, well, go figure. Incredible. I know. Yeah, so but I get what you're saying. Bowie in the penthouse and then, you know, just staying in the budget motel around the corner. Which would make it not a band, really. That's, that's the a, thing. That's a strange thing, isn't it? I'm, I'm just wondering about the anomaly of that. It just comes yeah, to me now, yeah. really. But it's, it's like wanting your cake and eating it. But like I say, I don't know, maybe Bowie did just not really um, lord it. I imagine he didn't, because yeah, otherwise would he, he it would have fallen apart, wouldn't it? He, it wouldn't have helped. Yeah, you're contradicting yourself right from the off. And obviously that had happened with um, the Spiders anyway, yeah, hadn't it? as we know. I mean, yeah. he, he ended up going around in a limousine and the, and the guys, the band, all toured together. So yeah. he, the last thing in the world he would want to do was make that mistake again. I'd imagine so, yeah. Okay, so the Sales Brothers moved the tone of the sessions away from art rock and more towards hard rock, and Bowie looked to one of his favourite bands at the time, the Pixies, for inspiration. Here we go. The Sales Brothers heckled Bowie into greater spontaneity, with most of the songs recorded in one take and lyrics left unpolished, thus giving the band a ragged, punky edge. I think that was that, that heckled is a good term because, you know, by all accounts, that's what the sales were doing. Could have been easy, couldn't it, to be, uh, you know, sort of be around Bowie and realise he was a star and just defer to him all the time. Be but, they, but they made that 
uh, you know, a rule right from the start. Say, look, you do, if you want to be a member of the band, you are a member of the band. So if we don't like what you're doing, we'll tell you. Yeah, quite that's right. That's how it's supposed to have worked. In interviews at the time, the band claimed that their musical influences were Gene Krupa, Charlie Mingus, Jimi Hendrix, Glenn Branca, Mountain, Cream and the Jeff Beck group. They chose the name Tin Machine after one of the songs they'd written. Uh, Tony Sales joked that as all four members were divorced when the band formed, originally the band was going to be called The Four Divorcees or Alimony Inc. <laughs> <laughs> Never heard that one. Uh, Gabrels uh, suggested calling the band White Noise, but Bowie dismissed it as too racist. Uh, Gabrels later elaborated on the real name choice, saying the band's name worked on a number of levels for us. The archaic, the idea of tin, which is still everywhere, tin cans, when you go to the super supermarket when you walk down the street you find rusting tin yeah he carried on he said it's such a supposedly archaic material but it's everywhere sort of like the idea of us playing this music and not using drum machines and sequences and things like that there's a point at which it connects at least for us and the final thing for lack of a better name well you <laughs> like might likely use to call them knitting machine right okay so. <laughs> the group setup allowed bowie a certain level of anonymity and to that end bowie stipulated that all four members divide interviews equally here we go between them and that in the cases where he was interviewed, that another member of the band would be present as well. Yeah, the key word being present. That <laughs> <laughs> was the thing. And difficult for an interviewer. Because, well, if it was me, obviously I would be directing everything at Bowie, but I'd be so mindful of the fact that somebody sat there supposedly on an equal footing, that I should be addressing 50% of what I was talking to you about. Funnily enough, I was thinking about this just the other day, again, uh, with Mark Ratcliffe, the working on Radio 1. We did these two characters called Skell Nonch and Irk Dre, who oh, did yes. uh, Cumbrian Tight Throat Singing. Yeah. And I think it was Skell Nonch. Would say, I went off to the shops the other day, and I bought some cabbage. And then, uh, then I would just go, and so did I. <laughs> and that's all I ever did. That was his character would just say, yes, I, I did as well. <laughs> <laughs> you, <laughs> you, you have to wonder if there was a, a tiny little bit of that. Whatever he did, I'd just go, yeah. and so did I, and so would I. Anyway, uh, okay, so there you go. Uh, he made a point to clarify that he didn't invite the others to join his band, rather the band literally came together. Also, according to Bowie, the group decided when they formed that they'd play from album to album, and that if we were still getting on with each other, which was a priority, that would continue. Well, that was sensible enough, I yep. suppose. The A to Z of David Bowie. So the first album now, the band's self-titled first album, recorded in late 1988 and early 89. They prepared some demos in LA before moving to Mountain Studios in Switzerland and then on to Montreal and finally to Nassau. The band did not have much luck recording there, finding it hard to record in the midst of the coke and poverty in crack, which partly inspired the album track Crack City. Bowie also claimed his own cocaine-addled past in the 1970s as an inspiration for the track. The songs on the album tended to stick to topics such as drugs and urban decay. All songs were a group effort, and the band recorded 35 songs in just six weeks. Now that is prolific, that's some going, isn't it? It is. In 2017, Gabrell said that the album could have been a double album, given the amount of material recorded but not released uh, during the sessions. The first song the band wrote and recorded was Heavens In Here, which they wrote from scratch and recorded in the first 30 hours together. They followed up by doing a cover of John Lennon's Working Class Hero and Roxy Music, if there is something, though the latter wouldn't appear until the second Tim Machine album. So the tracks on the album recorded live with no overdubs to capture the energy of the band. The others urged Bowie to avoid rewriting his lyrics. They were there all the time saying, don't wimp out, sing like you wrote it, stand by it. I have done and frequently do censor myself in terms of lyrics. I say one thing and then I think, well, maybe I'll just take the edge off that a bit. 
and he elaborated further. He said, we wanted to come out of the box with energy, the energy we felt when we were writing and playing. There's very, very little overdubbing on the album. For us, it's our live sound. Uh, there were no demos made for the album. Gabrell's basically said, well, the album is the demo. Bowie enjoyed making the album, saying, I'm so up on this that I want to go and start recording the next album tomorrow. Stylistically, it felt like the album was a continuation from Scary Monsters. Quote, it's almost dismissive of the last three albums I've done. Getting back on course, you could say. So that's key, isn't it, for Bowie it is, anyway? Yeah. Gabriels would later describe the songs on the album as the band screaming at the world. Tony Sales described their, their approach by saying, We were so sick of turning on the radio and hearing disco and dance music and drum machines, all that stuff, which I think in the business they call crap. We were just thinking about doing a project that would put an end to rock and roll. That's a, a big ask. It is a bit, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, steady, lad. Uh, as the band <laughs> finished the album, Bowie was sure Tim Machine would continue. He said there'll be another two albums at least. Oh, yes, this will go on for a while. Why we're all enjoying playing with each other so much. Well, why not? The band played a handful of shows in support of the album, informally called the Tin Machine Tour. Well, of course it was, in mid-1989. At the time of release in May 89, Tin Machine, the album, met with some success, winning generally positive reviews and getting to number three in the UK. Short-term sales of the album were estimated to have been uh, between 200,000 and 1 million copies within a few years. That is a lot. Okay, Spin magazine called the album Noise Rock Without the Noise, aggressive, direct, brutal and stylishly plain. Rolling Stone praised the album's cynical, indignant and acidic approach to music as an all-too-welcome feast of aggro guitar, flamboyance and bass drum body-checking, noting that at times it sounded like Sonic Youth meets Station to Station. So it's funny this, I mean... I, I, I'm not even noticed this, but on the uh, in the um, uh, sleeve notes for Buddha of Suburbia, yes, Bowie mentions a few different bands, and he mentions Sonic Youth in there, ah, and he mentions the Fall. Oh, does he? I didn't even know that. Oh, I didn't know that. In that crackers, yeah. Wow, somebody, somebody pointed it out when we uh, when we uh, mentioned Buddha of Suburbia uh, on the um, on the on this podcast. Wow. Right? Okay. Amazing. Uh, when asked in an interview what the main criticism of the record would be, Bowie conceded that the album might not be accessible to fans. I guess he said it's not as obviously melodic as one would think it would possibly be. For a Bowie album, of course. Gabrels claimed in 1991 that the album sales were ten times better than he had anticipated. Contrary to common reports, the band's first live performance together wasn't at the International Rock Awards show on the 31st of May 1989. Prior to that show, the band played an unannounced show in Nassau. Uh, Bowie recalled, We showed up at a club in Nassau where we were recording and did four or five songs. We just went down to a club and did them. Yeah, fair enough. Added Gabrels, we just walked up on stage and you could hear all these voices whispering, that's David Bowie. No, it can't be, can it? He's got a beard. That's a good thing, because that was one of those things at the time, you could, you could never imagine David Bowie having a beard. No. I suppose that, you know, as reinventions go, mm. that was that was a clever <laughs> one as well, really. It was, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he never had a beard, had he? No. He had everything else, but the band recognised that some fans and critics didn't like Bowie's role in Tim Machine, said Tony Sales, mainly... People are pissed off because David's not doing David Bowie, in inverted commas. Bowie confirmed that Tim Machine live shows would be non-theatrical in contrast to his most recent tour. So really from one extreme to the other here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the band undertook a low-key tour in small venues between the 14th of June and 3rd of July 1989 before further recording sessions in Sydney, Australia. 
The group then went on hiatus while Bowie conducted his solo sound and vision tour and filmed the Linguini incident. In November 1990, Bowie split from EMI. Hunt Sales said that EMI kind of freaked out a little bit at the strident, single Tin Machine debut, which partially explained why Bowie switched music labels. Wow, that's pretty, yeah. uh, pretty extreme, isn't it, for uh, what he knew to be a quite confrontational project mm. and then leaving your label behind because he didn't get it. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Sure. In March 1991, the band signed to Victory Music, distributed worldwide by London Records and Polygram, and started recording again. This was combined with tracks from the Sydney sessions to form the Tin Machine 2 album. The album was described as just as impure and twisted as their first one, but more R&B and less abrasive. Gabrels explained the change between the first and second albums was because by the second album, we knew one another as musicians. It wasn't as dense. We actually left more room, I think, for David to come up with more interesting melodies. There's more room for vocals on this record. So let's look at Tim Machine 2. In describing this album, guitarist Reed Cabrell said, Last time we were screaming at the world. This time I think they're all love songs in a strange kind of way. Uh, he joked that his playing style was something his friends called modal chromatism, which is any note you want as long as you end on a right note, Fair which is a little bit of a kind of... A, and it is great that. If you finish on the right <laughs> note, it's like, all right, he's gone off on one, and, but he knows what he's doing. And it is yeah. a little bit like that Les Dawson thing where, you know, and for the, uh, our American listeners, you might not know Les Dawson, but he was a brilliant pianist. But he would do this hilarious routine where there were lots of bum notes in there just mm. at the right crucial moment to yeah. make it funny. Mm. But you could tell that he actually had mastered the instrument. Exactly, yeah. But there's also that line by, uh, and it was Pete Townsend, I believe, who collared it. But he said, if you hit a bum note, hit it again. And it makes it sound like you really meant it. It's, it's a bit like a discordant thing. So you go, bang, bang, yeah, bang, bang, bang. Sure. Bink! It's like, yeah, stick it. Yeah. I, meant, I meant that, even though you didn't. Yeah, sure. And there was so much discord, wasn't there, in Tin Machine? Yeah. It was all about... Gabriel's later stated that at the time he was deeply into Nine Inch Nails' album, Pretty Hate Machine, and was looking for an industrial edge to his own guitar work for the album. Ultimately, after recording track after track of guitar noise, he found a shard of guitar noise that he liked and he used it on the album track Shopping for Girls, which is a song about child prostitution in Thailand. Yeah, this is heavy, isn't it? Yeah. So Bowie said on the track, the song actually came out of an investigative magazine article that Reeves' wife wrote on child prostitution around the world. And one of the places she was sent to was Thailand. Reeves had the rather unsavoury job of hiring the children and then getting them out of the brothels to Sarah, who could then interview them. We were just talking about those experiences oh. one night. Awful. He continued, he said, I've also been in Thailand and witnessed the same kind of thing. The actual approach of how to write the song was quite devastating because it was so easy to slip into sensationalism. I tried all kinds of ways of approaching it, the moral point of view, and I just ended up doing it straight narrative. That seemed to make it stronger than any other approach. So the Roxy Music cover, If There Is Something, was originally recorded during the sessions for the first album, but didn't come out as intended. Goodbye Mr Ed was started as a jam that Tim Machine used to tune up one day in the studio. Tony Hunt said, We all came back from lunch and David had written a whole sheet of lyrics for it. Then he put the vocal on later with a melody. Bowie himself described the meaning of the song as very much juxtaposing lines which really shouldn't fit. Free association around the idea of bye-bye 50s America. New York once belonged to the Manhattos, a tribe that used to have that bit of land before it became Manhattan. That was the first real solid image I had, he said. The group added three further tracks in Los Angeles with Hugh Padgham, producer of Bowie's 1984 album Tonight, overseeing the song One Shot. 
Tin Machine 2 was issued on the September 1991. Hunt Sales took lead vocals on two tracks, Stateside and Sorry. The album cover was created by Edward Bell, who'd previously done uh, Scary Monsters, a brilliant cover. In a manner similar to pop art, it consists of a photo of the Croissos Curos repeated fourfold. These are statues, weren't they? The original concept had each one overlaid with torn pieces of photos of each member to represent them, except for Gabrell's, which featured a cutout of a Steinberger guitar. Talking of members, for the American release of the album, the cover was airbrushed to remove the genitalia of the statues. Even Canada has the original cover, Bowie said. Only in America. Oh, Bowie floated the idea of allowing American album buyers to send away to the record company for the genitalia that was stuck from their version of the cover, but the label balked. What a surprise! He said, then the fans could paste them back on, but the label freaked out at the idea. Sending genitals through the mail is a serious offence. It's a fair point. Pardon the phrase. Um, less successful than the band's debut album, Tin Machine 2 peaked at number 23 in the UK and number 126 in the USA. It generally received poor reviews on release, although it achieved success on the modern rock chart in the USA, where Baby Universal reached number 21 and One Shot became an even bigger hit, reaching number three. In the years after the album's release, some critics have suggested that the album was unjustly, harshly reviewed at the time of its release. Uh, during press performances for the album, Gabrels played his guitar with a vibrator. For a performance on Top of the Pops, who banned the use of the, of the vibrator, surprisingly enough, he mimed playing his guitar with a chocolatey clair. The strange thing is, right, I mean, I, and <laughs> make of this what you will, Go on. but you get like these little magazines every now and then, like with, the, you know, the Sunday paper. So if you go to a cafe and you'll see little magazines lying about, yeah. and they might be associated to a paper that you don't buy. Yes. Put it that way. Yeah. All right? Don't want to get too political. I know what here. you mean, Mark. Right, but you'll get these little things in there where you can buy, like, two two slippers in one, you know? <laughs> I think they call it the omni-slipper. All right, yeah. omni-slippers, you know, and uh, clothes horses. Things, slank, that, yeah. th- things that old people like to buy. <laughs> <laughs> a slanket. <laughs> I'm 57, by the way. And every now and then you'll see a vibration there, which is, like, for, you know, you uh, ostensibly used for, like, rubbing on your arm or yeah, whatever. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, read Gabriel. Could have quite possibly said, Look, Your Honour, I've got tennis elbow. <laughs> I saw it in the catalogue. Yes. <laughs> Not that I know what a vibrator sounds like. Obviously. Mm. Okay, from the 5th of October 1991 to the 17th of February 1992, the group undertook a larger tour known as the It's My Life Tour. The band was joined uh, for these dates by guitarist Eric Schirmerhorn. In late 1981, Bowie reiterated that he was still happy being in the band, stating, I'm content, I'm deriving a great deal of fulfilment from working with Tim Machine. Cabrels agreed, saying, we're doing exactly what we wanted to do. So tracks from the It's My Life tour were released on the July 1992 album Tim Machine Live, Oy Vey Baby. Sales were poor, that's the retail sales, not the brothers, and there was speculation that the album's commercial failure was among the reasons that the band ultimately split up. As early as 1990, Bowie knew he'd be going back to solo work, although not because he disliked working with the band. He said, I have very definite ideas of what I want to do as a solo artist, which I'll be starting on probably late next year. Again, completely different, hopefully, from what I've done before. Mm. Shortly after release of Oy Vey Baby, Bowie returned to solo recording with the single Real Cool World, but he maintained intentions to return to the studio with Tim Machine for a third album in 93. These plans would fail to come to fruition, however, and the band broke up shortly after. So here we go. There were allegations that Hunt Sale's growing drug addiction were responsible for the band's end. Bowie merely remarked, Personal problems within the band became the reason for its demise. It's not for me to talk about them, but it became physically impossible for us to carry on. And that was pretty sad, really. So there you go. That was the end of uh, Tim Machine. Uh, Did you go and see him playing? No, I didn't. You know, I had lost interest. I bought the album, didn't like it, and I should have gone. Of course I should have gone to see them, just see what it was like, but I didn't. 
Well, I did. I went to the international, uh, it was the international too, wasn't it? The old carousel club on Plymouth Grove. And I watched about half an hour and I did leave. And oh. so, you know, I mean, I was in a little room with David Bowie, who I was still a massive fan of, you know, mm. despite the previous few albums. Uh, and the thought of being in a tiny room with Bowie mm. was like mind blowing. But it just, it just, it didn't really, I didn't find it that believable. And I know that they kind of, you know, it's a bit of a Marmite thing, this, isn't it? You know? Yeah. And I don't know. There's been people out there who think that Tim Machine are just amazing. Uh, but it just didn't do it for me. In, and, and it was even, like I say, to the point of where I'm thinking, God, David Bowie is like 20 yards away from me. But yeah, yeah I've seen him now and I'm not enjoying this. So I'm off. Sadly. Right. It's a strange one, is it? Because in, in later years, a lot of people have said, and Gabrels has said himself, he, he felt like, you know, they were ahead of their time in a way. They, they, they weren't appreciated. Sales were good, but really, generally, they weren't appreciated. But it was the kind of music that you may come to maybe 20, 25, 30 years down the line. It's a bit of which, a get-out clause, isn't it? Well, of course it is, because you could say that about anything, couldn't you? Yeah, I mean, um, me and you could go off and make an album tomorrow yeah. that nobody likes and then say, yeah, we're, ah, we're well ahead of our time. Just wait 50 years. <laughs> I'll be dead. Yeah. Well, you know. But, anyway, I mean, like I say, we always say each to their own, and it was a valuable tool in Bowie's uh, career because it really, really helped him out of that pickle. It was a little bit like kind of demolishing everything, yeah. wasn't it? It was but, like taking a sledgehammer to the last six years or whatever. And then coming back with a, you know, with a cleansed palate, if you like. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's how I look at Tim Machine, really. But we just like burning everything to the ground and mm. starting from scratch, which he was able to do, of course, you know. In the, in the 90s. And it also gave Bowie the uh, the financial wherewithal to continue and do the uh, the ensuing albums, which, yeah. you know, um, some of which were just not nothing short of amazing. So it, it worked. It, it worked. Did. It did. Let's have a look at Tony and Hunt sales then. All right, then. So Tony Fox sales, born September 26, 1951, American rock musicians and composer. Normally on bass guitar, sales and his brother Hunt have worked with Todd Rundgren, Iggy Pop and Tin Machine with David Bowie. Born in Cleveland, Ohio, a son of 1950s-60s TV comedian Soupy Sales uh, and Barbara Fox, Tony grew up in Detroit, Michigan, with his younger brother, Hunt Sales. His first musical group was with Hunt, a drummer in Tony and the Tigers. The band also included John Poussette Dart, son of artist Richard Poussette Dart, and later the leader of the... Poussette Dart Band. As expected. The band appeared on the TV show hosted by Steve Allen in 1965 and performed two tunes, I'll Be On My Way and When The Party's Over, vintage clips of which you can actually still see on YouTube, by the way. I would like a look at them, actually. Uh, Tony and the Tigers released a song, Turn It On, Girl, uh, which was a minor hit in Detroit. Appeared on the local show Hullabaloo a couple of times, December 20th, 1965, hosted by Jerry Lewis, and the 4th of April, 1966, hosted by their father, Soupy Sales, oh, Nepotism Alert. Yeah. The band also appeared on the local Detroit Windsor dance show Swinging Time hosted by Robin Seymour <laughs> Swinging Time I like it by 1970 the Sales Brothers had joined Todd Rundgren in the newly formed group Runt and recorded two albums they recorded the album Kill City with Iggy Pop in 75 and as we know provided the rhythm section for Iggy Pop's Lust for Life in 77 produced by Bowie who also played the keyboards the Brothers joined Pop on his subsequent tour recorded as TVI Live 77 and released in 78 he and Anulka were married on the 20th of August, 1978, in Los Angeles. He and his brother, Hunt, did some recordings together. Sales had a car accident in 1979, after which he was dead for several minutes before being revived and was in a coma for over eight months. His recordings with Hunt were stored away. He recovered from his injuries and went back into music. I didn't know that part of his no, life. Wow. No, no. Uh, Sales and Taryn Power, daughter of the late movie star Tyrone Power and actress Linda Christian, had two children together, Anthony Tony Sales and Valentine. 
Argentina Fox sales. In 1982, sales joined a band called Checkered Past, which included the singer-actor Michael Debar, later a Power Station ex-Sex Pistols guitar player Steve Jones, Blondie's bassist Nigel Harrison and drummer Clem Burke. According to Debar, the, the choice of name was not an idle one. All the members have been through a lot, he told the Los Angeles Times at his house in Hollywood, including the fact that Sales had fully recovered from a debilitating auto accident. After an album released by Checkered Past in 1984 flopped, the band broke up shortly afterwards. Throughout the 1990s, Sales recorded and produced, and he was a member of the short-lived all-star band The Cheap Dates, which included actor Harry Dean Stanton, Jeff Skunk Baxter and Slim Jim Phantom. Sales and Hunt's recording from the late 70s were released in 2008 by Perseverance Records as a solo album, Hired Guns, an e-book about them, quintessentially Soul Brothers, the Sales Brothers in their own words, by Stephanie Lynn Thorburn, was published in 2009. Let's have a look at the life now of his brother, Hunt Sales. Yeah, drummer, he's played in most of the same bands as his brother, Tony. Yeah, so Hunt Sales is a son of the same fella that his brother's dad is as well. And he was also in the same band as his brother, Tony and the Tigers, And he appeared on the same Yeah, he did. In 1976, he played drums with the hard rock power trio Paris, uh, formed by former Fleetwood Mac guitarist, songwriter Bob Welsh. This trio, which included ex-Jester at all bassist Glenn Cornick, was short-lived, releasing two albums for Capital. Hunt played and sang backup vocals on the second Paris album, Big Town, with an E. 2006 to 1. In 1997, he was doing the same thing as his brother again. So, you know, he's just... He, they weren't joined at the hip, but no. they did, most of the stuff that they did together, they did together. They did. <laughs> except, except uh, this year, he had a solo album out called Get Your Shit Together as Hunt Sales Memorial. So he did that on his own, not did together. He? And I can ask you the pertinent question, did he get his shit together? Yeah, he did. Good. So that's it for this episode of the A to Z of David Bowie. But once again, before you go... If you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, you can. And here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie members club called Cheap Things. And for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Right. So now you're thinking $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive material delivered to your door. Well, computer actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right. Mark, Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Materials such as interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends, there'll be regular film Bowie quizzes, Bowie guitar tutorials, unreleased archive written material, competitions, and perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark, Howard Knock, and Jason Reed visiting various Bowie places of interest, and much more besides. All this for just $5 a month. So if you can't resist, simply go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash cheap things, or one word, and join up. There's also a website, bowiecheapthings.com. Book early, 